So Titus chapter 2, picking up in our in-depth study here tonight in verse 15. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. So you have some guys following the Apostle Paul who are called like he is to go and start churches where the gospel has never been preached before. And it is a fun and exciting thing to go where the gospel has never been preached. Um, I'd been down in, right after the Iron Curtain raised, and we were down into the, the Soviet Union and, and where a uh, communist country and, and going into Hungary and going down into, at that time, uh, Yugoslavia, Serbia today, and, and Croatia, and, and going down in these places and, and just going out in the streets. At that time, just Americans showing up was as good as having a rock and roll band, you know. Just here's some American in the street talking. Let's go listen to what he has to say. You'd have anywhere from 500 to 1,000 people gathered around and just saying what you guys learned in kindergarten. Jesus loves you. He's God's only begotten son that came into human flesh to die on a cross for you, to forgive your sins so that you could be forgiven right now, walk with him, talk with him, and live an eternal life. And they often had questions. Well, what about evolution? Well, aren't there many gods? How do you know this is the right God? They often had legitimate questions and we would answer them in a shortened form and, okay, that's good. I want to be a Christian. And it was so fun because they had not been what I called inoculated by the gospel. Now, I've had the opposite of experience to that when I've gone to speak at rescue missions. You know, down at the rescue mission, you listen to a sermon, then you get to eat. And many of these guys have gone down there and listened to two or three messages a day so you can get two or three meals a day And they've done it for 30 years. So they go down there, and these guys are just like, there's only one good sermon, and that is a quick one, because I'm hungry. And uh, you get up there, most of them are sleeping. The ones that are awake, they could preach it better than you could preach it. And if you mess up, they let you know it. And truly a room full of an amazingly hard hearts. Now, We happen to have a couple of guys in our church who got saved in rescue missions. So in no way am I trying to invalidate their ministry. Praise God for their ministry. But I'm saying they're sort of the epitome of somebody who's been inoculated with the gospel. They've heard so many sermons to try to now touch their hearts with the gospel. It's almost impossible. And so it's rather fun to go and tell people the good news of Jesus, I'd never heard about it before. I mean, it's, you know, I'm here to tell you about Christ. Who is he? And it's fun to, you know, they're trying to explain to him, well, have you ever seen a church with a cross? What's a cross? You know, one of these things on a building. Yeah, what is that thing? What does that mean? Completely clueless that a guy died on that thing right there. On a cross, they had no clue. And it's, it's just fun to tell them. And they're just full of, a, of an open heart to hear the gospel. Well, that's what Titus signed up for. That's what Timothy signed up for. But in some cases, the churches did not have people they could raise up quick enough to be pastors or even leaders in the church. And so he had to leave Timothy behind. He had to leave Titus behind. He had to leave these guys that were called to be apostles, called to be evangelists, called to support Paul in his ministry, to be pastors. And they started a lot of churches, but they hadn't hung around to pastor a lot of churches. Ray Comfort, who has the gift of evangelism, said that uh, he pastored a church for one year, and it was the longest 10 years of his life. And... uh, If you don't have that calling, it can be an amazing, difficult thing for you. And here, Titus now is sort of stuck. You know, what do I do? Things are out of control, and I don't know what I'm doing. I'm failing. I know that, but what do I do? 
And Paul said, man, you've got to raise up leaders. This is the qualification. You've got to tell the older women, younger women, older men, younger men, some pretty heavy things. And in this culture, it was radically stretching, radically difficult. The things that Titus would have had to say to them would have been so hard for them to hear. Ultimately, why? He told us last week what God is trying to do. Remember there in Titus chapter 2, verse 14? It's God's plan that he gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. You see, if you really let God redeem your life, you really begin to live in purity as God's called you to walk in purity, then here's the exciting thing. God is going to start working in your life amazing good works, an amazing life of ministry. And then he doesn't just leave it there. Now, there are a lot of pastors who fell in the ministry. And a big part of the reason they fell is because they just think they're supposed to be an encyclopedia. They think they're... So, hey, everybody shut their cell phones off, would you? I rebuke all the cell phones in the name of Jesus. <laughs> casting them out. Um, you guys know better than that. Shut them up. So, they often fell because they, they think that once they inform people their job is completed. And a pastor is just not supposed to be an encyclopedia or the yellow pages or, these days, a website of information. He's got to be a leader to lead the people from where they're at to where they need to be. We see a perfect picture of that of Moses, where he was trying to get these people who had worshipped idols for 430 years and pagan Egypt and get them just an 11 day journey. It took him over 40 years to get there, but he had to lead them. And we learned a lot about leadership and, and learned a lot about appointing leaders. We learned a lot of stuff from Moses in his life. We see that with the kings, whether it was King Saul or King David or King Hezekiah or Solomon or any of them. We see it in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, where you have these people that are called to be leaders And it's an amazing task to develop leadership within yourself. And now the whole point is to help people to get out of the rut, to get out of the place they're at, and to get them where they need to be. And typically, you guys who are parents, you know, typically that's a pretty unpopular job. When it's time to stretch people, getting the kids out of bed or getting them to brush their teeth, or getting them to put their clothes away and can't clean their room, or whatever the task may be. It's a hard thing to get them the vision and then get them to do it every day on a repeated basis and to continue that for decades. And that's leadership. And so, Titus, I'm not just telling you, tell them and your job's done. Your job as a pastor is to speak these things, and it's not enough just to teach them or say it to them. You've got to exhort them. You've got to rebuke them with all authority. Don't let anyone despise you. You've got to do your job, even though at times it may be unpopular, even though at times people don't want to be stretched. I've been stretched enough. You've got to stretch them. And so he, he points out, this is what you've got to do. You've got to get him from A to Z, and uh, it's your job. And so he first points out that as you speak, exhort, rebuke, it's with all authority. I love what Barnes says in his notes. The sense here is he was to do it decidedly, without ambiguity, without compromise, without keeping anything back. He was to state these things not as being an advice or a counsel, but as the requirement of God, say in such a way, thus saith the Lord. 
This isn't my opinion. This isn't my idea. This isn't a group of leaders' ideas. God has spoken it. This is what we're to do. Thus saith the Lord. I love that in Jesus' ministry. We saw that in Matthew chapter 7, verse 28 and 29. When the people heard Jesus, they were astonished at his teaching. And it said he spoke as one having authority, not as the scribes. You see, the scribes would never commit. The scribes would say, yeah, you know, Rabbi Hillel says, and, but, you know, on the other hand, Rabbi Shammai says, and, well, I know the Mishnah says this, but the Talmud says this, and, and they would debate the scriptures and discuss them, and, and the scribes would always sort of give you other men's commentaries and opinions without ever saying, thus saith the Lord. And Jesus came on the scene and he just said, this is it. I know you've always heard an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, now if you go back and look in context of that scripture, that was for judges to judge with equity. But I say to you, you love your enemies. Pray for those who despitefully use you. You need to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Don't be like the scribes and the Pharisees. Their righteousness is nothing compared to where God wants to take you. And, and he spoke in such an authoritative way. Just, whoa, I can't hold on to my bitterness. God is commanding me. And I sense it in the power, the unction, the authority of the power of God's spirit. As Jesus spoke, it was like a dagger that went right through me. So, A pastor, as he speaks, he needs to know the heart and the mind of God, and then he needs to speak it as if it is truly from God. Unfortunately, most churches today, most denominations today, and when I say most, I'm talking way up into the 90 percentile, guys, do not believe the Bible is the word of God. Most seminaries today, most denominations today, and I'm talking mainline denominations, if you look at what their church manual says, it says something to the effect, the Bible is the inspired word of God in matters pertaining to faith and salvation. They'll say it in a variety of ways around that, but here's what they're really saying. We do believe Jesus is God, he died and he rose again. Outside of that, the Bible's not really trustworthy. We really can't count on it. It's an ancient book with a bunch of ancient ideas and it really isn't modernized enough to help us in our modern day. That's basically their inference. Therefore, we need the input from whatever to really get the whole story. But the Bible is very emphatic. The word of God is not broken, Jesus said. Jesus said heaven and earth would pass away before every word of it would be complete. So as the heaven and the earth passed away, then God's word is still intact for us. It says in 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17, all God's word is inspired and it's good and profitable for rebuke, for correction, for training righteousness, that the man of God would be equipped for every good work. That he would be lacking nothing but complete. And so to get pastors today, especially those who have been through seminary training, because most seminaries do not teach the Bible as the word of God. And that's why I think it's so essential that we have one, and we do have one now. We have a pastor's college where you can get your biblical degree because there's so many out there that waver on this point. And so you go to a a seminary, and you listen to some guy who's unsure whether God's word is really God's word and whether that was really there or somebody added it later or whether it's accurate or not accurate and you listen to these guys waffle for three years and then they give him their diploma and put him out in a church saying, go pastor a church. They're like, with what? <laughs> and here he's making it clear to Titus. You realize as you tell them these things, as you proclaim the word of God, You do it with authority. It's not you. It's God's word that's going to convict them. It's not your opinion. It's 
God's word. And God doesn't give us his opinion. He's given us the truth. And that truth would set us free. Turn over to the the book of Acts, if you would. And we'll see that Paul spoke these things. He didn't hold back. The word to speak these things is to preach, to announce, to reveal, to disclose. Also synonymous, the, the concept of teach. Get it out there, speaking it, preaching it, proclaiming it, teaching it, however. And in Acts chapter 20, verse 20, he says there, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, so different venues of teaching. So Paul makes it clear. I said everything, even all the hard stuff. I went through all the scriptures, even the stuff that you've really got to have some razor sharp teeth to bite through some of these big chunks of meat. And I did it. I did it publicly where, you know, I had a nice little mill that everybody could chew up. But then I went house to house and I gave the the people who are hungry for the deep things of God, I gave them meaty things of God. Many different venues, discipling new Christians over here and leaders over here. And, and I never stopped until all the word of God was proclaimed. Look at verse 26. Acts 20, verse 26. Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Why? Verse 27. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Look at verse 31. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So he taught them publicly, house to house. He did it diligently, the whole counsel of God. He stayed on track. He had a method. He knows that he covered everything. And he did it passionately. He passionately taught them and warning them and beseeching them and begging them and imploring them as he taught through it. And that's God's command with all the authority to speak his word. One person said, God's messengers are to remember that they are messengers from a king holding the word that brings life and turns back hell. I like the way Paul told it to young Timothy In 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. There in verse 1. 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1. He says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's like a general talking to his lieutenants. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. So realize one day, as a commander, you're going to have to stand before the commander-in-chief and give an account what you did um, with your soldiers uh, on your watch. Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching. For time will come when they'll not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things. Endure affliction. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So he tells Timothy, I'm telling you to proclaim the word, to herald the word, and it's not going to always be with open ears. Sometimes you've got to convince people. Sometimes their ears are shut off. You've got to rebuke them to open the ears back up. Sometimes they know it, but you've got to encourage them to do it. And you need to repeatedly do it with all long suffering. You don't stop. You don't stop. If you go through the New Testament, you'll find this phrase over and over again. And I want to say this by reminder. And I want to remind you. I want to bring to your remembrance You'll find in the New Testament that the apostles are saying, I know I'm not telling you anything new. I know I'm not telling you something you don't already know. But my job is to remind you over and over again. And if you've been a Christian a while, you realize you hear a message on this level, 
The next time you hear it, you hear it on this level. The next time you hear it on this level. And each time you hear it, it goes deeper and deeper as you grow deeper. And we have to keep reminding them and exhort them and not to give up with all long-suffering and teaching to hang in there. Again, we're in the last days, and we are in the last days. Sound doctrine is, is not the, the dish of the day. Bookstores, no. You don't put commentaries out there. What do people want to see when they walk into the bookstore? They want to see books on emotion. They want to see books on how to get over depression or how to be happy, how to have a friend, how to be successful, how to be prosperous. 90% of bookstores are filled with feel-good books, self-help books. A very small percentage of the bookstore is commentaries on how to study the Bible or what the Bible says. We are in the last days where people want to feel good and and help their emotions and hear things about their emotions and relationships and family and all I'm not saying it's all bad. I'm just saying people just craving to hear the Bible like you're hearing it tonight is few and far between. And so you got to speak those things. Get it out there. He, I did not hold back, Paul says. I write out there with tears. I can tell you that I am innocent of the blood of all men. I can tell you here after 20 years of pastoring Calvary Chapel, San Diego, I am innocent of the blood. I have taught the entire Bible. You can listen to it for free on the internet. You can download it on your iPod for free. And listen to it all the time. You can get a CD of it. The whole book of the Bible, I think for nine bucks or whatever it is, I don't know. But we're talking hundreds of tapes. And so, again, the ability to learn the whole Bible is so accessible. Like it's never been accessible in the 2,000 years since Christ died and rose again. And I think a part of it is as men's ears are, are lesser and lesser and lesser wanting to hear the word of God, God's making it easier and easier and easier to hear. I remember as a young boy and, and pastor saying, look at your Bible. Out of 2,000 years of Christianity, it's only really the last 100, 150 years that they're, they're printed in the millions. You think about it. It's only been in... The 20th percent of the time, you know, 100, maybe 200 years out of 2,000 years that everybody can have a Bible accessible as we do, as easy as we do, as cheap as we do. And it's an amazing thing that the Word of God is there, so speak it. But also, we need to exhort, encourage. This is looking at the positive side. Again, to to encourage them, beseech them, entreat them, plead with them, with all authority. It is a spiritual gift. And hopefully as a pastor, as a leader, you would have that spiritual gift. In Romans chapter 12, turn there if you would. Romans chapter 12, look at verse 6 there. Romans chapter 12, verse 6. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in portion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministry. He who teaches in his teaching, and here it is, verse 8. He who exhorts in his exhortation. He who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. But it's one of the the ministering of the gifts of the Spirit is exhortation. Barnabas in the book of Acts had that gift. They actually called him Barnabas. Bar means son of. And then Abbas means encouragement. They literally called him, you are the son of encouragement. It's like encouragement gave birth to a son and you're it. You're, you're like encouragement incarnate. And that's what we're going to call you. Barnabas, the son of encouragement. 
and how the churches were so encouraged. But it's interesting if you look how he encouraged them. In the book of Acts, they went to the churches and said, hey guys, you've been suffering? You haven't even begun yet. There's many, many much more things you're gonna suffer before you see the kingdom of heaven. And they were greatly encouraged by that message. (laughs) That was their word of encouragement. And so again, he spoke the truth and that's what encouraged them. We gotta be careful not to, to give some promise of God that's not there or to give them some rosy picture that's not there or to give them some assurance that God hasn't given them in the word. The way we encourage people is giving them the truth and then having them put 100% of their faith in the truth of God. But I've seen people try to encourage them by saying, oh, absolutely, you know, I know your wife left you or your husband's a drunk or, or your child is uh, on drugs and I, you know, we're gonna pray and I give you 100% assurance it's gonna change, it's gonna be different. God doesn't give that assurance. God says every person's an individual free-willed agent and he's gonna respect that. Is, are they being convicted by the Spirit? Are angels around about them protecting them? I'm, absolutely. God's answering our prayer, but they have to bend their knee and submit. And so, um, again, we need to know the truth and then speak the truth to encourage them. But notice here, 109 times in the New Testament, this word is used by Jesus and the apostles. Look there at Romans 12, verse 1. Here that word, exhort, is translated beseech. Romans chapter 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable in the perfect will of God. Look at Romans chapter 15, verse 30. Romans chapter 15, verse 30. Hear this word exhort is translated beg. Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit that you strive together with me in prayers to God for me. That word strive in the Greek is agonizomai. We get our word agonize from it. I beg you to let God's love fill your heart. Let his Spirit do a greater work so you become a great person of prayer, praying hours and wrestling with God with me. So in Romans 12, it's translated beseech. Romans 15, 30, it's translated beg. Look at Romans 16, 17. Romans chapter 16, verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, it's the same word. Note those who cause division offenses contrary to the doctrines you have learned and avoid them. And then in 1 Corinthians, just turn to the very next book, one page over there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, the same word here is translated plead. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and there be no divisions among you, but that you may be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. So I exhort in Romans 12, 1, I beseech, Romans 15, 30, I beg, Romans 16, 17, I urge, 1 Corinthians 1, 10, I plead. It's, it's passionately begging somebody, pleading with somebody, I'm telling you, if you will make that life change, if you will make that choice, if you will quit doing this with your time and start doing this with your time, if you'll change your relationship from this way to this way, if you'll honor God this way, if you'll pray this way, if you'll, I I beg you, I plead you, I plead with you. It says in Romans 10.25, it says, provoke one another to love and good works. Literally, it's exactly what it means to irritate somebody until they get to the place. Have you ever had your kids plead with you until you give in? Please, please, let me stay up just a little bit longer. Just another half an hour. Let me have just one more piece of pie. Come on, just one more Reese's peanut butter cup, please, you know. How many of you guys have given in from the plead? Come on, parents. Yeah, every one of you, huh? It works. It's annoying, but it works. It's effective. 
And it's something that, again, the pastor is to desire deeply for another. That's the whole point. Have a love for your sheep that you're willing to get in there and beg them, plead with them. Get on your hands and knees and, and, and beg them to repent. I know some of our leaders have gone to people in sin and literally have gotten on their hands and knees at their feet, begging them to repent of what they're doing and about ready to do further. It's, it's a heavy thing when you see God's love taking that form. And so it's not enough for Timothy just to give the information out. He's got to speak it, proclaim it, teach it, herald it, pronounce it with all long suffering and, and hanging in there <laughs> in every way. And here on the positive side, to just do everything you can to, to beg the church to make those life changes. Just come on, let God stretch you just a little bit more to, to whatever that is, that aspect of exhortation. And then we see in verse 15, to also to rebuke. Again, to speak with all authority, to exhort with all authority, and now to rebuke with all authority. And we, I think we know this word pretty well, don't we? It's also the concept of bringing conviction. I love that on the day of the book of, the uh, day of Pentecost in the book of Acts, as Peter preached. It says they were pierced to the heart and said, what must we do to be saved? But if you go back and look at Acts chapter two and three and look at Peter's sermon, he says, and this Jesus whom you crucified, nailing him to the cross because your sins, and boy, he just laid it on him. You see later on uh, when Peter's talking to the Pharisees and Paul is talking to the Pharisees and Stephen is preaching to the Pharisees, he's, he's saying, you are stubborn and stiff-necked people, just like your fathers killed all the prophets, so you now want to kill me and whew, it's getting out the sword and just slashing away. Every bit of it's truth. Now, they don't agree with that truth. But that's the whole point of rebuking. Is somebody's blinded. They're looking at things this way. And, and you've got to get heavy. And, and you've got to get personal. And you've got to get forward and, and say, hold on here. I know you're seeing things this way. But this is how you're supposed to see things. And uh, again, Sometimes it works in a one time. Sometimes it takes 10 years to get there. And that's why, again, in, in uh, 2 Timothy 2, it says we're to do it humility and gentleness and love rebuking. And so, again, um, I've seen some people rebuking in, a, in an incredibly hateful spirit. And that's not the spirit of God. God's spirit ascended and it came like a dove. A dove's not a big giant hawk. A dove's not a vulture. A dove is probably one of the most dispenseless animals in existence. And it's just so calm and so still. And, and this is the Spirit of God. It's a still, small voice. It's a gentle breeze. And even though the words may be piercing, they're so enwrapped with love that people realize that hurts, but I know you're not trying to hurt me. That just caused a giant hole in me to bleed, but I know you're not trying to injure me. You're trying to help me. And again, is it going to be appreciated? Not always. Remember in Titus chapter 1 there, they were saying horrible things about Cretans. And Paul there in Titus 1.13 said, This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. So he said, hey, don't let these heretics keep spewing their heresy. Don't let these uh, philosophers keep polluting you with their vain, empty philosophies. You get in there and shut these guys down in the church who are directing the church in that way. And of course, I think really the spirit of it all is Jesus said it clearly in Revelation 3.19 to the church of Laodicea, he said, as many as I love, what? 
I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. So you cannot be a good parent without having disciplined your kids, right? So you'll find as a leader, you have to have the positive side, the encouragement. You have to have the negative side, right? The rebuke. And it's interesting, when you go back to the book of Genesis, it says he made man in his own image, male and female, he created them. And it's interesting when you look at the temperament of women and the temperament of men. The man is the rebuker. (laughs) The man is the law. The man puts down the fist and he's hard and he's heavy and he's direct and he's pounding. And then you see the wife, the exhorter, the encourager, the the one who's, who's saying, but, but, you know, here's the positive side of things. And the guy's saying, but here's the negative side of things. And often the, the wife says, you need to be more like this. And the guy says, no, you need to be more like this. But together, you know, one's the, the, the holding the nail and the other's got the hammer. And, you know, you're laying the sharp point on the child. Uh, eventually they get chiseled into the place where they need to be. And so in the church, there's some sermons you come in and it's just encouragement. It's like, oh, oh, I love church. Oh, man, it's so healing to go there. And you come back the next week, we're in a different passage. It's like, oh, man, this is horrible. So convicting. Every week I come, it's cool. Conv- oh, you didn't say that last week. Oh, well, that last week wasn't so bad. But, oh, you know, it's so heavy. It's so hard. You know, it's It's both. And if you look in the Gospels, you'll see both. When you study the epistles, you'll see both. You'll see an amazing amount of encouragement at the beginning of epistles. And then you'll see the exhortation and the rebuke at the end of the epistles. I'm talking about the letters of Paul. And you'll see, the, you'll see it each time. The exhortation and the rebuke. And both of them are essential. William Barclay said this, The eyes of the sinner must be open to his sin. The mind of the misguided must be led to realize it's mistaken. The heart of the heedless must be stabbed, brought awake. The Christian message is not to send men to sleep. It is not comfortable assurances that everything will be all right no matter what. It is rather the blinding light which shows men themselves as they are and God as he is. So the pastor, when he rebukes, is just to turn the light on full beams. And it says in John 3 that those who want Christ, they come into the light, that their deeds would be exposed in the light. Turn it on, shine it on. If there is any sin in me, if there's any mold growing anywhere, burn it out. I I want to be where I need to be. Those in the darkness, when the light's fully turned on, off they're going to go to go get their ears tickled and go find a place where the light isn't so bright, where they can just hear what they want to hear and little bits of, you know, light shoot across from here, you know, the darkness from here or there, but they're not going to really be changed. They're just going to be lulled to sleep. I'm okay. You're okay. Everything's good. Be happy. It's all good. Don't worry. And uh, boy, you won't get that message if you read the Bible. There's many reasons people should worry, and there's many reasons people need to make life changes. And it's not because God's a prude and wants to make your life miserable. It's because the truth sets you free. And if you walk the way Jesus would walk, you'll be the happiest, the healthiest, the prosperous, the blessed life you can. If you're not, you need to get there. And then he ends by saying this in verse 15, let no one despise you. I think the the New American Standard hits this better. It it says this, let no one disregard you. The word disregard there, the word despise, it literally means thinking around something. In other words, don't let people walk around you. Don't let people get around you. You're blocking the doorway. Don't let them come in the back door. Lock the door. Don't let them come in that way. And that's literally what it's saying is is don't let somebody not listen to you. Don't let somebody ignore you. 
Don't let somebody discredit you or discount you or minimize you. Be emphatic. And I, I've seen pastors, and, and you know, God bless them, a lot of it is just their personality. They don't ever want to say anything dogmatic. They always want to him and ha. There was a pastor on Larry King live a while back, and Larry King, you know, he's pretty good sometimes, and he just said, so then you're telling me if I'm not a born-again Christian like you're a born-again Christian, I'm going to go to hell, damned in the lake of fire forever. That's a pretty easy question to answer, isn't it? I mean, it's a one-word answer for me. Yes. But this guy wanted to him and not, well, you know, I'm not God, and he has the ultimate say, and, you know, you know, who am I to judge people, and how can, you know, I can be that emphatic on saying it exactly like that. I probably wouldn't word it like that, but, you know, I sort of believe that, but I wouldn't come out and say that to you on television so millions of people can hear me be that dogmatic. And so, you know, and that doesn't help anybody. And he's basically saying, don't hem and haw around about it. Don't be, don't be getting there a roundabout way. Say it. Say it plainly. They understand it. And they change or they leave. They get stretched or they hate you. They let God do the work. Or they completely say, you're, you're crazy. And they walk away. Jesus said, beware when all men speak well of you. Jesus said, there's something wrong. If everybody is your friend, there's something wrong with that. Jesus had a lot of enemies. Jesus upset as m- probably more people than he blessed. And if you go back and look at what Jesus said, He was direct. He told the Pharisees, you are sons of the devil. You know how I know that? Because he has hated me from the beginning. He wants to destroy me. You hate me and you want to destroy me. You are a blind guide leading the blind. You're a whitewashed tomb on the outside. The Jews would paint their tombs white because if you stepped on a tomb... You're next to the dead, and that would make you ceremonially unclean. So they made all their tombs bright, you know, white. They'd constantly paint them. So if you walk through a, you know, a grassy area, you don't step on a a grave. And that's you guys. You're, You're whitewashed tombs. You're brightly painted on the outside. But inside, the realization is there. You're just full of dead men's bones. And so if you look and read the Gospels, just read a gospel. The Gospel of Mark, it's the shortest gospel, but read, read one of the gospels. You'll hear that. Jesus was just point blank with them. I am the only way there is to heaven. There is no other way. There's only one way to, to come unto the Father and be accepted for all eternal life, and that is through me. There is no other way. Jesus didn't hem and haw around about it. There isn't another way. Jesus is the only way. And let me tell you something. There's a lot of other things the Bible's very, very dogmatic about. And it's dogmatic about it because it's right. It's not dogmatic because it's mean or narrow-minded or only, you know, our club is only going to be a handful of the elite. It's the truth because it's the truth. If you get a pilot who's trying to hit that little island out in the Pacific called Hawaii, he he can't be loosey-goosey about his directions. He's got to have pinpoint accuracy out in the thousands and thousands of miles of open ocean to find that one little tiny spot out there. You've got to be incredibly accurate. You want an accurate pilot. You want an accurate surgeon. You want an accuracy on the guy making your glasses right I mean I could go right on down the line you want the lady to be accurate when she's charging your bill at the grocery store and if it's off a couple cents you'll let her know 
You want the gas pump to be accurately putting the amount of gas in your tank that it says it's putting in your tank. I mean, we could keep going down the line. We love accuracy. And when we don't have accuracy, we feel ripped off. Why? Because accuracy brings freedom. Accuracy blesses us. Accuracy benefits us. If the doctor's accurate with the operation, you can get better. If the doctor is accurate in making your prescription lenses, you'll see better. How many of you guys have had glasses that the eye doctor messed up on it and you couldn't see better? It actually gave you a headache and made things worse. Yeah, a lot of people. It's hard to get that right. It's hard to find a guy who really does a good job. But the reality is, is Christ is telling you, this is how you accurately can be a husband or a father or a wife or a child or a Christian with your time, with your energies, with your finances, with, and the job place. I mean, there's a thousand venues, and the Bible says this is accurate. And if you're accurate, you'll bless yourself, you'll bless others, you'll, you, you'll, there'll be a benefit and a prosperity. Don't let them get around you. In John 15, 20, go ahead and turn there if you would. The Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 20. John 15, verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Interesting, isn't it? You see, when somebody is not respecting the word of God or respecting somebody proclaiming the word of God, they're not rejecting the the person who spoke it. They're rejecting God, who's the originator of it. And so God makes it very clear, and to you pastors and leaders and parents, when you tell somebody the truth and they reject it, don't take it personally. You obeyed God perfectly. Now it's up to them whether they're gonna obey God. And you know what? Your delivery could have been better. I'll just tell you right now. I've never walked off this pulpit and said, couldn't have changed a word, Brian. That was perfect. I've been preaching for 20 years and I've probably been happy with maybe three sermons I've ever preached. You know, call up the other pastors going, how did it go? Oh, it was horrible. You know, that's pretty much the way you feel when you try to get up here and talk for a while. You can always do it better and I guarantee you could have always said it better to your husband or your wife or your kids or the person at work. You know what though? No matter how the delivery was, it was still the truth of God's word. And they have to receive it or reject it. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, turn there if you would. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, looking at verse 12 and 13. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12 and 13. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, teach you, to esteem them very highly in love for the work, for their work's sake. Now, this is the very first verse that every Christian should memorize. No. Um, <laughs> it's every verse that every pastor would wish everybody would memorize. But again here, he says, recognize those who are laboring among you. And, and don't despise the guy that's trying to stretch you. Don't be upset with the guy who's trying to change you. Don't, don't disregard the person who's trying to get you from A to Z. The opposite. Put yourself in their shoes and realize a lot of the things they're saying is not enjoyable for them. A lot of the things they're saying is they realize it's not entertaining you. I can be a very entertaining person. I could entertain you every week, stories, being funny. I I, I could entertain you. I have that ability. But it would not benefit you. So when we're 
going through the book of Numbers or Ezekiel or whatever, you know what? It's rich to me because I've studied this so many times and it's awesome, but I'm trying to make it rich to you. But you know what? You've got to want it to be rich to you. And so in the same way to realize that as you're trying to proclaim things that are hard to hear or hard to receive, don't put them down for it. Esteem them highly in love that, hey, that was a hard thing to say. That was a hard passage of scripture to to teach through and and to encourage them, bless them for doing it and not curse them for having done that. The book of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. This is one of those self-serving type of sermons here. Um, <laughs> but it's God's word, I have to teach it, but I'm enjoying it, so. Anyway, Hebrews thirteen seventeen, Obey those who rule you, rule over you. Be submissive. Do I hear amen from all the leaders and pastors? <laughs> for, they <laughs> for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief. For that would be unprofitable for you. So again, you don't want leaders and pastors who are wore down by your stubbornness, who are not enjoying the ministry God's given them because you're so unwilling to listen and to take it before the Lord and and let God change you. Now, obviously, I can freely talk about this tonight because there's none of that that I know of going on in the church. The interesting thing about living in Southern California, if people don't want to be stretched, throw a rock in about any direction you want and there's another church to go to. Okay, many parts of the United States, it's not that way. Okay, you got a bunch of dead churches and one church that's similar uh, to ours that's contemporary music, teaching to the word, and that's it. You want to drive two hours, you can go to another one. And so uh, it's interesting what people have to learn to put up with and tolerate because there isn't another venue in town. Um, but, you know, when you go to pastor's conferences or uh, I get to gr- together with a group of pastors every month, they often bemoan the fact that, you know, every time they are, you know, in the Bible and they're going to the book of Isaiah, everybody goes to the church down the street until they get back to the gospel of Luke and then they all show back up, you know. And, um, or, you know, when you're going through a, a building project, everybody disappears, and then when the building's built, they all show back up, or um, a number of other issues, you know, going through a church discipline situation or, or something, or uh, one of the pastor leaders fall in the church, people disappear, and then when the things have calmed down, they all show back up. You know, fair-weather fair uh, commitments. And it is a hard thing to pastor church, uh, church in that uh, venue, and I, and I really feel... Uh, for the smaller churches who, you know, when you have 100 people and 20 people leave, it's a much greater impact than in a church our size where even a few hundred people leave. You don't necessarily feel the impact to the same degree. And uh, so again, there's, there's got to be a mutual uh, commitment and willingness to let the pastor help you to grow and to listen and not to despise, to disregard, to go around him, but to let the word have its effect. Turn back over to Acts chapter 20, if you would. And there in verse 28. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Therefore take heed to yourself and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The bottom line as pastors and leaders is whether the church receives it or rejects it, whether they're willing to hear it or not, we have the responsibility to not let people disregard it. And if, if it's going to make them unhappy and they're going to leave the church, it's my responsibility to make sure that they do one of the two, that they either heed the word or leave, but to allow them to go on in their sin in the church or to allow them to disregard the truth of what they need to do to change, that would be wrong for me. 
that would be the equivalent of my child, you know, my eight-year-old kid doesn't want to get up and go to school, and, you know, I say, well, okay, you know, you should go to school, but if you're not, you're not, and so he doesn't go to school anymore. You, you see what I'm saying? Out of the 177 days he's going to go to school that year, probably 170 of them is going to be a battle every morning. But that is a battle you have to do, right? First day, the last day, they're willing. The day before Christmas, no problem. I mean, there's a few days they're willing to go to school. But for the most part, you realize that you've got to get them there and to make sure they do their homework. In the same way, we're accountable to one another to encourage each other, to help each other to get where we need to be. And this is the pastor's job. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 Notice here, Paul in his position. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. Him, referring to Jesus, we preach. Notice here, warning every man. Notice that. Number two, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may be able to what? Present every man perfect, mature, complete in Christ Jesus. To this end, I labor, striving according to his workings, which he works in me mightily. So to the leaders and the pastors here, (laughs) we labor, we strive, we agonize like parents do with their kids, <laughs> like wives often do with their husbands and husbands with their wives. We hang in there. We don't give up. We don't grow weary in well-doing. We strive, we labor, we agonize until we finally have presented every man perfect in Christ, matured in Christ, established in Christ. Now, what was it in particular that Titus was to teach, to exhort, to what else? To rebuke, with how? With all authority and letting nobody despise him or disregard him. Remember back in verse 14? That God has purified for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So I told you tonight, the dissect, I dissected to, for you tonight behind the scenes of, of the pastor's job, but what was it Titus was supposed to do? To tell everybody that every one of us have a multitude of good works that God wants to do through you. Turn, if you would, to 1 Corinthians, and we're going to look here just for a moment, and I realize the time is getting away. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4, First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are diversity of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to who? Each one for the profit of all. Then he gives a list of them. Look down in verse 11. But to one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to who? Each one individually as he wills. In the body of Christ, there's good works. There's different activities, different ministries, different manifestations. But all of us have an activity, a ministry, a manifestation that we have. There's some things that people do around here and they do it every week and if they didn't do it, we would be in trouble. What was it? I don't know. Was it a ministry? It ministered to me. Was it an activity? Absolutely. Um, Exactly what was it? I, I don't know, but I know it was the Spirit of God. And let me tell you something. Before you guys step in here to go to church, from the beginning of that property to in here, there are literally hundreds of people at work so you can just sit here comfortably and listen to a message. And many of you are those people, and you know what I'm talking about. 
from opening up gates to turning lights on to getting the heat on to getting the restrooms ready to getting the kids ministries ready to getting the sound and the music and the lights and the it's it's an amazing thing that goes on hours and hours and hours just so people can hear the word and that's just here what about all of the ministries that go around worldwide all the things that are happening that are happening from here And he goes on in verse 12 saying, As one body is one, but has many members, but all members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we are baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, whether slave or free, have all been made to drink into one spirit. And the fact the body is one member, but many. The foot should say, because I'm not at hand, am I not of the body? If therefore is not of the body, and if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, am I not of the body? Is it therefore not the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were a hearing, where would be the smelling? And now God has sent the members, each one of them in the body, just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But indeed, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't have any need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nor such rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, the little toes inside the sock, inside the smelly shoe. On these we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts have a greater modesty. But our presentable parts have no need. But God has composed the body, having given greater honor to that body which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all all members suffer. One member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Every part of your body is important. Has one of your toes ever let you know how important it is? I'll tell you what, I, I've just about been crippled before. I mean, just, you know, bring the wheelchair in. I just, one toe, I'm a big baby, I have no pain tolerance. But I'll tell you, one toe, you're just sort of paralyzed, you know. And, and eight out of ten things you do, you need that toe. And if without it, boy, you realize, man, I tell that pain's gone in that thing. I am struggling here. And so in the same way in the body of Christ, God puts us as he pleased. Today you're a hand, next week you're an ear. (laughs) But God puts us as he pleases and every one of us are necessary. I simply want to say this to you. If you're a Christian here and you've become a Christian in the last six months, you should just be sitting at Jesus' feet, soaking in the word. But after you've been here for around six months or so, God is going to begin speaking to your heart. And it may be some little thing. But you need to obey that voice and do it. Now, after you do it about 10 times, all the fun in it is pretty much gone. (laughs) And now it's what it was supposed to be originally. Your work, your labor of love, your work of the ministry. Okay? The guys go down to the orphanage for the first, oh, so awesome, I can't wait to go next week. And, and it's great, and it's that way for the first half a dozen times. But what impresses me is the guys going down to the orphanage 30 years later. You get in and teach Sunday school, it's oh, so great, those little five-year-olds are so cute and it's so wonderful. Yeah, that's great, but what impresses me is when people are doing it for 60, 70, 80 years constantly serving and ministering and raising up generation after generation after generation of these little guys just putting into their hearts at a young age a love for God, a love for his word. And so I encourage you to find that part in the body and to do it. And if you've been in the church here tonight, you've been here for months, years, and you have no ministry, then according to Titus, I'm supposed to rebuke you and exhort you and to teach you. And I'm not to let you disregard what I'm saying here tonight. God has purified you to have all these amazing works, good works coming out of your life. Now, I want to make it clear. 
works don't save you. So all your good works aren't saving you. But somebody who is really saved has a lot of great works. So if you're considering yourself saved and you don't have a lot of great works, that's one of the signs that we are saved. That we really have been purified. Because we're zealous in your passions is a zealousness to do good works. So I exhort you. Well, does it have to be one of the ministries listed there? No, that's the whole point. There's some that are ministries, some that are activities, some that are manifestations. God is more creative than 10 things, and everybody does one of those 10 things. God's far more creative than that. And let me tell you, there's, I can think of 100 ministries we're not doing right now that, that I know there's some of you that are just being disobedient or they would be happening. But you're letting the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things choke you out, keeping you from letting God through his spirit, by his grace, it's the grace of God that teaches us, it's the grace of God that gets us there to have those amazing good works working through you. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we just come before you right now and we do ask in Jesus' name that you'd let every one of us here tonight, Lord, be encouraged and exhorted and rebuked and taught here tonight to to raise up and to be what we are supposed to be. Let's all just stand right now together. and hmm, Let's just lift our hands up. And just right now, just mean it in your heart. Just say, God, take a hold of me in a deeper way than you've ever taken a hold of me before. Lord, I need your grace like I've never needed it before. God, just flood me with your grace. Fill me with your power. Let your love and your spirit move me, stir me. Lord, purify me. If there's some areas of your life that aren't pure, just lift them up to God right now. Purify me, God. That I can be freed up and I can be that person that's zealous for good works. Make me that person of God that's just radically zealous for good works. Take my life, Lord. I surrender it to you, God. Let's just pray the Lord's Prayer tonight here together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.